For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good evening. Um, instead of apologizing, I'll simply say this. This is supposed to be the last, the seventh, of what was originally supposed to be a six-part series. Now, my kids and everybody are laughing at me because I'm up to seven and I'm not finished. Tonight is formally supposed to be the last one, which is supposed to be called Machlokas Hashem Shemayim Sofalis Kayim, the aftermath of the Maimondian controversies, which I have a lot of very interesting material to share with you. However, we ain't getting to it, because really today is the second half of the sixth part, which was an ad one itself. So, what can I tell you? Uh, I'm guilty, um, but nevertheless, I'm going to finish off the last of the great medieval Maimonidean controversies today, uh, no matter what. And then we'll figure out what to do about adding an ace um, in the end. But it's the summertime and I'm tired myself, so I'm going to need a rest first. So for formal purposes, we're dealing over here with the summer lecture series, three weeks in the year 2021, even though three weeks is now over. The title of the series is Fundamental Disagreement. The Maimonidean Controversies of the Middle Ages. Tonight is the seventh lecture. The formal title, as I said before, the aftermath. In reality, it's last week part two. In other words, the, the third great Maimonidean controversy about whether Abraham or Sarah really existed, part two. And um, you'll see this um, as soon as it's made available. And uh, once again, I want to say, if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel when you watch it, please do. It helps us. And without any further ado, oh yeah, <laughs> I almost forgot. And this is the one that's sponsored by the Stefanski family, my good friends. And look at this. They're sponsoring in memory of Doe Steinmetz. Uh, I believe he's a Chavrusa, their son. He was killed in the Maroon. In that uh, crush, they call it now, whatever, the stampede. Uh, very tragic. And uh, uh, it's just very sad. So we're, they're, they're uh, sponsoring tonight's talking his memory. Someone should have an Aaliyah. Many tragedies this year. <laughs> okay, we'll jump off into our material. And I'll start by saying, we left off last time, around the year 1300 or so, a little later, in the middle of the so-called Third Maimonidean Controversy, raging, as had the other two, in the south of France and the north of Spain, or as they used to call in those days, as we see over here, uh, Languedoc and Aragon. These are famous districts of Spain. So if you look at this map over here, uh, that's the French Riviera and so forth. On the left side, you may notice in the upper map, Montpellier, our place, and Narbonne. And you go down, you cross into Spain, and eventually you get to Barcelona at the bottom part. Look at the lower map, it's pretty more obvious. right? Get a driving map. There's Lugnel and Barcelona. See, and Montpellier is nearby. This is where all the fights happen. Now the Frum, as we said last time, couldn't stand the left-wing interpretations of the Torah to the effect that nothing in the Torah was historically true, that none of it actually happened, that the events of the Torah were fables, maybe philosophical fables, okay, profound allegories, perhaps, but all fables and fairy tales. And the allegories and fables, moreover, were simply telling you something that anyone can figure out himself from studying 
philosophy and ethics, uh, natural philosophy and moral philosophy. It's not like you came with any Gavaldic Echadushim when they said Abraham is matter and Sarah is form or the other way around, or that the 12 sons were the 12 zodiac. The lesson behind the Mashal is nothing super duper deep. Now, one of the most dangerous aspects was the kind of chinuch, education, the kind of curriculum this approach advocated, the left-wing approach advocated, which involved an inversion of the traditional educational hierarchy. So instead of putting Hebrew first and English second, they're putting the secular first and the Hebrew second, if it ever gets there. And we all know in America what that means. These left-wing trends were manifesting themselves, or they were accused of manifesting themselves, and a great deal of non-nomianism. People started to actually um, deliberately violate mitzvahs. Or at least it seems so. This is a raging controversy down until today. Some historians will say it was all baloney. All baloney. Others say no. But I know this was the charges going back and forth in those days. Um, you have to understand. At this map, you're talking Montpellier, Nimes, uh, Narbonne, uh, Luniel and so forth, small communities, intense communities, zero privacy. I mean, how much privacy do you have in your shul? Just imagine a young couple, for example, gets married, and then he becomes Maimonidianized, as the expression went, not that that's not actually what the Ramam held. And let's say he stops keeping this or that mitzvah. Today you have cases like that. The guy gets married, the Shiva guy, girl, and somewhere along the line she says, I don't want to do this anymore. He says, I don't want to do that anymore. The whole crisis. He started having that in the 13th century. Or mocking the historicity of this or that story. The family attentions between the couple, just imagine them. Between the in-laws and Mechotonin. The whole community soon is popping because it's not that large of a community. As we saw last time, the two figures who emerge are Abba Mori Hayarchi. Abba Mori from, that's the guy's name. Like Abba, you know. So Abba Moriachi, uh, uh, from Luniel. There's the beginning, if you look at the map at the bottom, right? Because uh, Yarchi is Yerach, Yerach is Moon, Moon is Loon in French, right? Uh, and the Rajba in Barcelona. So look at the lower map. Abba Mori lives in Luniel, the Rajba in Barcelona. They're in two very different countries. They're not that far away, though. I mean, I don't want to be ridiculous. I mean, about 200, 250 miles away. But nevertheless, in the same gag in the same part of the Europe. Okay? Now, their roles were different. And the interplay between Abba Moriyachi on the one hand and the Rajma on the other, fascinating. Abba Moriyachi, Abba Mori of Luniel, was what we call today a communal activist, a tutsuch, which is a certain type, whose influence de derived from his personal charisma and not from any institutional base. He won the Rav, won the Rosh Bezin. He wasn't a Rosh Hashiva, anything like that. He was who he was, a private scholar. As I would say. As we'll see, he was very active and indefatigable correspondent. Strong opinions. Fairly eloquent. And he, the people who were his fans were his fans. He was a Talmud Chacham. But he was no Godel. The truth is, he was something of a pain in the neck. Criticizing the Rajma, for example, for permitting metal talismans. Go to the next one. The beginning of his book, it's in the Rajma also. Believe it or not, there used to be a, a, a feeling. If you take one of these things and you put them in a guy's kidney, it helps him with the kidney stones. 
I think that's how it works. And the Rosh said the person, kidney patient, could use it because the doctor was prescribing it. P- kidney patient used it. Amarchi wrote to him and said, how can you say that? It's a Zora. It's this, that, and the other. You know, listen, you're a squirt. This is the Rajma. <laughs> you get it? The guy knows what he's talking about. You're frumer than the Pope. You know what I'm saying? And the Rosh writes him back. He said, listen, I don't know. I get from this Gamar and this Gamar and this and the other. And Abamar tries to challenge him. It's like, you know, you see somebody telling Moshe Feinstein, you don't know what you're talking about. So he's a pain in the neck. But his heart's in the right place. By the way, it's a fascinating tuba from the Rajba, in which he defends the practice of magic remedies in medicine, uh, if a doctor prescribes them, provided they're not idolatrous, and he doesn't consider this to be idolatrous. You're not praying to another god. There's a whole question of Gorn, Daki, and Mori, and things like that. And Rajah is very practical in a great line that I always use. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, magic is anything that works empirically that science has not figured out why yet. Which I thought was a very cool idea. Anyway, the Rajah, as the acknowledged Godel Ador, enjoyed, by contrast, both personal charisma, he was that type of person, as well as institutional authority as head of a great yeshiva. And I want you to understand the Rosh in Barcelona was the leading rabbi of his day, and his and he was rich, and uh, I think he had six or seven hundred guys, which was gigantic by the, the standards of the Middle Ages. And he also was the Rosh of a, a very important basin. And he was not a salaried communal official. He wasn't a basin, uh, a dying, you know, employed by the community. Uh, he was independent. And let's put it this way: obviously, he's as close to institutional authority as you could get. But this is a tricky issue, and we will discuss this. Now, the different personal situations between Abba Mariachi on the one hand and the Rajma on the other dictated two different roles. Abba Mariachi was free to be a public gadfly, a loose cannon, an agitator like William Lloyd Garrison, a member, famous uh, abolitionist. I am, this is Mamish Abba Mariachi. This is like Garrison. I grew up on Garrison Boulevard, by the way because William Lloyd Garrison lived for a while in Baltimore. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be heard. That's Mamash de Michas Knos. That's him. So that's a certain type. Now, by the way, William Lloyd Garrison eventually got the abolition, you know, with the Civil War. Now, in the case of Amoriach, he said, the Maimonideans in Languedoc are Trafe, most of them, they're Apikursin, they're leading people off the derech. They're trying to subvert Torah Chinuch, and so on and so forth. And I will not equivocate, and I will be heard. And it was an indefatigable correspondent. He wrote to people back and forth. Every day the guy was writing and receiving letters. And he agitated all the time. Find out what's going over here. Let me know. Let's figure out how we can combat them. You might say he was like a 13th century Yaakov Emden. Because Yaakov Emden was doing that with Sabatianism. He's an indefatigable correspondent. He published all these things. When he hears somebody was doing something bad, he put it out there in print. That's who he was. Although, Yaakov Emden had gravitas. And I don't think Abba Mariachi did. Yaakov Emden, whatever his, you know, he certainly had his personal uh, weirdisms. No question about that. But he's one of the Godolia dark. Let me be very exact. Rabbi Yaakov Endon was one of the foremost Talmudists of the 18th century. 
He was one of the foremost post-king of the 18th century. So that gives him a certain gravitas. Abba Marchiachi was at the B level. You understand? Now, um, the Rajva, by contrast, was occupying a completely different situation. He conceived it as his duty to maintain cordial and respectful ties with all elements of Klal Yisrael in order to be able to exercise a positive halachic influence on them to see that they shouldn't go too far off the derech. So if you want to see who the Raja was, let's go to the next one. I mean, it sounds funny for me to say this, but I'm saying it by giving you a frame of reference. He was very much in the mold of Yitzchukon Inspector, what they call Rosh Kabhag. Rosh Kabhag means Rav Shekobani Agol. And the idea was like this. If he's held in esteem uh, by all parties, he will be able to use his influence for good and to block the bad. I remember Yitzchukon was once consulted by the rabbinate in France, which wasn't very firm. They wanted to do some cockamamie idea with Gittin. And people were screaming at them, and they said, well, we want to take it to one person we respect, Rabbi Specter in Kovno. And he wrote to me, he said, it's not a good idea. You guys are very nice. I think, it's a, I think your motives are very wonderful. But I would re- recommend backing off. That was the Raja also. He wouldn't have that kind of godal authority. You see? To maintain such a Claudius Royal charisma, it required cultivating a public image as a centrist, a normal guy, and not an extremist. Okay? You can't get a godal, godal adored, a rash kabahag, somebody that all parties, right, left, and center, turn to and respect his halachic rulings and other advice unless he's seen as being normal, understanding the world, not an extremist, and so forth. Accordingly, the Rasha couldn't just issue a harem against a group if that group was sizable. <coughs> Think about that. If it represented a significant portion of public opinion, whatever it was, as it happened, um, I mean, we saw this happen in the 1230s. That was the, when they ended up burning the books and cutting off the tongues. Such a unilateral harem could not be obeyed. It would not be obeyed. And indeed, it was what we call Let's go to the next one. There's a rule in Talmudic response. You can't impose upon a, a, a community something it, it just won't listen to, it can't handle. And so to say you can't have any reading of the Rambam or any philosophy books, anything like this, in southern France, in Languedoc, they're not going to listen. It's not, maybe they should. They're not going to listen. And so you're going to shove down their throats. It's not going to work. And so, as I said last time, the Rajva began to engage in the arduous process of politicking, which is consulting, caucusing, and working to try to build a consensus. It's a pain in the neck. It's the only way you get anything done in a consensus-bound society. If you want the Jewish people especially in um, Spain and southern France, scattered communities that don't have anybody over them. If you want them all to agree to do something as strong or as controversial as banning something, you better get all your ducks in a row. You better have spoken to and discussed and heard out all the different viewpoints and thrash it out, if it's even possible, when they're all not in the same room. Before you proceed to try to issue a, uh, something as, as drastic as a cherem. Meanwhile, as the Raja was doing this, 
And in the Mechas Kronos, you see all his letters back and forth to all different community leaders. The left wing was not asleep. They were arguing their case. And so, if you're talking about the years 1300 to 1305, just imagine in that area that we saw before. Um, hundreds of letters, if not more, because there are no phones. Hundreds <coughs> of letters are crisscrossing these communities um, in Languedoc and in Spain. Both sides writing to the same people, endeavoring to win support. So obviously the right wing is saying, join us against these apocorsum. And the left wing is saying, join us against these right wing nuts. Right? Now Abamari Ayachi was impatient. That was his nature. He was always spurring the Rajba to be more vocal, more active. He respectfully, but constantly, chided the Rajba to lead the charge for the from. The Raja was much more reluctant, with mixed feelings towards Abba Moriyachi. The Raja was not interested in ferreting out secret or quiet left-wingers. Because Abba Moriyachi said, this guy lives in this town, really? I heard he said this and this and this, and a chasana, and this, that, and the other. And the Raja was saying, like, the guy's shutting up, you know, don't stir up a hornet's nest, you know? The Raja was not interested in ferreting these out, because that would cast him in the, in the role of a persecutor, and he did not want this. On the other hand, I want to be clear, the Rajput's heart wasn't on the far right. right. He totally agreed with the far right. And he certainly concurred about the curriculum problems. So it was a very complex situation. And all I can tell you is Lashon Hara Litoeles was the order of the day, and gossip and rumor could not help combine with accurate dope about suspected individuals notorious at the time, but forgotten today. So it wasn't exactly Mark McCarthyism, but it was very close. It was something like that. Again, this reminds us of the end of ancient era in the 18th century. Lashahara, accusations, innuendos, sometimes it's true. 1309-1305 were like that. Okay? For example, therefore, um, a great deal of correspondence has to do with the comings and goings of Levi ben Avram of Villefranche. Uh, what can I tell you? Villefranche is uh, in Provence. It's to the right of Languedoc, uh, past Marseille. Oh, this guy, I mean, is he an Apicarius? You know, uh, he was a popular, learned, controversial, left-wing philosophical homiletician. Boy, did the Rajva and Abamari have out for him. Look what they say. This guy, the Rajva writes it. This guy is Amin and Apokairis, Asher Hamayim bin Badas Muhammad, Tobi Minim. A Muslim is better than him because a Muslim believes in God and all this guy doesn't. I'm going to say it's true. That's what the Rajva was told. Okay? That's what he was told. Now, the fact that this guy, Levi bin Avram, who had such a notorious reputation, was very poor, and he got help from Torah monotypes, in other words, from Jews who were more open than my Maimonidean types. That really ticked off the Rajva and Abba Mori, and the Rajva used his influence to pressure Levi's patrons to dump him. So in other words, Levi ben Avram didn't have any money. He had some guys, names he never heard of, Shmuel Salami, uh, who supported him? And the rabbi said, no, you should cut off all the money from him. 
Uh, what can I tell you? You hit him in the pocketbook. Even though this ticked off some right-wingers who are living there. There was a guy, Crescas Vidal, who obviously was an important figure. And Crescas um, Vidal is writing back and forth. I don't know if the guy's going from. He knows how to learn. You know, he's, he's observant. He seems observant. He smells a little phony. That's all. This Crescas Vidal, Crescas Vidal, was a perfect example. Vidal, of course, is Chaim, right? Um, was a perfect example of the type of re- responsible, well-regarded, sane, normal, right-wing player the Raja wanted to recruit in the co-op. There were many people that are chashim on all sides. I can't go through all these people. It'll take you 12 hours, right? It's long enough as it is. There's a whole cast of characters involved in the correspondence in the communities back and forth. Naturally, being sane, Kreskis Vidal tried to stay out of the whole thing. Okay? What do you need this for? He lived there. He's going to get involved in the fight to try to persecute somebody who may or may not be from, take off the whole community, make a, a machlekes. They want to do that. Such are the politics of seeking consensus and building movements. They don't always work the way you want them to work. The refusal of similar types to publicly join the fight and issue some kind of a cherem in however limited a form really left the Rajva surprised, frustrated, and angry. Many of the principals lived um, in a very interesting place in the Torah center of Perpignan. Now again, look at the upper map. You see where Montpellier is? By now, I hope you have an idea what I'm talking about. So, it's in Languedoc, on the way to um, Spain, but it's still in what's France today. At that time, Perpignan was part of Spain. I mean, it's in, it's above the Pyrenees, but it belonged to the Kingdom of Aragon. And the reason I'm saying this, Perpignan, which is a nothing town today, was once, for a short time, a major Jewish center of scholarship. If I tell you who the big rabbi in Rosh Hashiva was, they'd be uh, shocked. Okay? And that was a major headquarters of uh, Torah Amada opposed to any cherem. I say Torah Amada, they were very from, they tried to be like Maimonides, uh, they're big time in Chachamim. They're also interested in science and Mata, and science and uh, philosophy and all that. And, uh, oh my goodness, they uh, were very opposed to a harem and anything like that. As I said, this is one of the interesting communities of Languedoc. Indeed, Perpignan, in the early 1300s, is enjoying its five minutes of fame in Jewish history because it hosted, listen closely, in a small town, I tell you today, you won't believe it was there. Uh, a world-class Torah Omada Yeshiva, which was headed by one of the most famous Talmudists of the day. I'm talking about the Meiri. <laughs> That's who the Meiri was. And the Meiri, and by, thir- by the time this uh, fight came out in open, 1304, he had just concluded publishing his monumental commentary on the entire Talmud, or almost, which I think many are familiar with. And the Meiri's work is magisterial. Uh, it's a work of Maimonidean proportions. It's gigantic size. Now, uh, if you know what the Meiri is, it's a huge work. It's not like the Mishnah Torah, of course, but it's quite remarkable. And so we're dealing with a heavy hitter. Despite his respect for the Rajva, the Meiri strongly opposed any harem on any grounds. 
or I should say on many grounds. His three main grounds for opposing a cherem on uh, the left-wingers or any uh, uh, engagement with, with secular studies, which is what the right-wingers are trying to do. He said, listen, most people in our area, in Languedoc, do not go off the derech from secular studies. A few do. You can't be geyser on the many because of the few. It's not right. <laughs> this is the old argument that we have today. Right? You say, look at this guy, became now from this guy. You can't make everybody like that because a few people have bad eggs. Number two, there he said, the math and science Talmudim are the ones who help us in yeshiva understand Ayurveda, climate, all those other receptors which require math and science knowledge. Right? Number three, even if you issued such a harem, nobody's going to listen, as we saw in 1232. And the result will be Achil Hashem and Bizarian Atoro. Plain and simple. So just back off from it. The liberal Me'iri even said, look, don't ban even the trace books. The trace books are okay. Parts of it are not good. No, so skip the bad parts. And he said, like this, listen, you got Kohelis. The Gemara says, Gemara says, Kohelis is full of bad parts. But the rabbi is included in the Bible because of the good parts, because of the end. So what's that saying? Right? It's possible to be badly affected by the bad parts. But calculating everything all together, you figure the bottom line will be positive. It's the same thing. You can read the books of Aristotle and Galen and Hippocrates and all the others. And some parts you simply have to say are love, Dalfka, and I don't believe in this. But the good parts are the good parts. So the mirror comes across as a very liberal individual. Now, um, I can't tell you how much this disturbed the Rajba and Abba Mariarchi and the other right-wing activists because the Meiri had gravitas. To counterbalance the Meiri, the right wing sought the written support of the third big Talmudist in Spain. So you got the Rajva, you got the Meiri. Well, I'll tell you again, if you look at this map, today Perpignan, which is just north of the Spanish border, is in France. But at that time, uh, France, Sp uh, Spain, Aragon, had a finger sticking into France until 1669. And um, what do you call it? Perpignan was part of that. Now, so it's a Languedoc community under the crown of Aragon. I can speak about that, but I won't. And so what they did was they turned to the third big Godo. So the three big hitters at that time, in 1304 in Spain, in terms of learning, the Rajva, the Meiri, and the Rush. Okay? But the Rush is altogether a different situation. Right? The Rush, as you can see, is Toledo. Toledo. Look at the map over here. The Rush is Ashkenaz. I think many of you know that. Look where the rush starts. All the way up on the Rhine. Right? Near Nuremberg and so forth. Uh, rush is Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz Jew. He was a Talmud of Marm Rottenberg. Um, he eventually, Marm Rottenberg is imprisoned. They want to jail the rush as well. He has to flee Germany. And it goes that long route, as you see in the top map. All the way down to Montpellier. Ah. So he gets on the Rhone, on the Loire River, and he takes it all the way down to um, Languedoc, and he travels from there into Spain, as you can see. So that means 
he and his family, who were refugees running away from the Holy Roman Emperor and the Christians who wanted to kill them, had occasion, he with his family, to spend some time on the way that they were fleeing in the communities of southern France, such as we're talking about, the Torah communities, who received him very cordially, gave him code to They saw him on his way to Barcelona, which you can see in the map. In Barcelona, he met the Rajva. The Rajva said, oh, I see you're a big deal. I'm going to get you a job. And the Rajva got him the job in central Spain at the bottom map, in Toledo, which was the capital of Castile. So in 1304, you have the Rajva in Barcelona, you have the Rush now in Toledo, you have the Miri in Perpignan. The Miri is against uh, Achirim. So the Rajva says to the Rush, will you back me? Anyway, you're Ashkenaz. Rush was a Tosafist, so to speak. Um, his Rebbe's Marm Rottenberg, who's considered the last of the Tosafists. Okay? So, Rush had a certain amount of conflict in this, because he didn't want to mess up the community's long duck, which had treated him very well. He saw with his own eyes the term out people were fine. But on the other hand, um, he had no time for secular studies. And anyway, he primarily respected the Rajput. He had Hakar Sato for him because he got him the job. And anyway, the Rajput was Doug Godel in Spain. And so in the end, the Rush will end up strongly supporting Acherim because it wasn't a problem in Toledo. We have to understand the Rush himself, although not a Sephardi, I'm describing a most unusual event over here. Mr. Super Ashkenaz, Mr. Yekesh Abayekes, becomes the chief rabbi of Sephardi <laughs> in uh, Toledo and founds a dynasty there for the rest of the 1300s. His children after him, his son was the Tour, for example, Baltorim, and others. Um, the Rush had a different personality than the Spanish Jews. I always forget the story exactly how it goes. He held, on Friday night, you say, I think I'm right about this, and they said, It could be the other way around. And since he said you should do it this way, and he said, we ain't changing the way we do it, he would not say amen when they made a bracha. And that's how it went for 20 years. They lived there, and everybody was happy. Uh, the rush had a tremendous impact on the Jews of Castile, which is why some of you may be familiar that there are some Jews who don't eat kidneys. And now be your Moroccan type, certain ones, who are descended from the Spanish Jews, who were influenced by the by the Minog of the Rush, who was an Ashkenaz. So it's just interesting. So the Rush is a powerful personality, not in Languedoc, but in Spain. That's my point. Okay? Now, um, in Spain in general, in the time we're talking about, things generally were more to the right. Okay? Although to be perfectly honest, it's hard to tell. The upper classes didn't care what anybody says. Uh, there's the famous Averroist upper classes, courtier classes, the ones that dealt with the king and the government. They weren't gurs, the whole thing. They did whatever they pleased. Uh, you know, philosophical, otherwise. No, you can't make a harem on those richy rich guys. They're too powerful. But I'm talking about for everybody else. But in France, in Languedoc, it was a different story. And now, the left wing was building up a fury against this gadfly, Ava Maria Yaki, who the heck asked you anything? Who am you open your stupid big mouth? We're not bothering anybody. What are you coming against us for? And what you're saying is not even true, you jerk. That's how they write. As time went on, the Rajva found himself profoundly conflicted. On the one hand, he moved more and more in the direction 
of issuing a cherem, a public cherem. Something had to be done, he became more and more convinced, to stop these leftists. On the other hand, Duraj was very smart. He was totally sensitive to the hornet's nest this would stare up. And he didn't want to repeat of 1232. Next thing he'll do, they'll call the Catholic Church. They'll start burning people, cutting out tongues. Who knows where he'll stop? Skipping a million details. What the Rajab ended up doing was drafting a harem in a manner he considered nuanced, balanced, and sensitive. That way, it might get accepted and not provoke strife. So you can see over here a great jurist, a master of words, trying to do this right. Now, how did he do this? First of all, he said, it's going to be local. I'm not issuing a care for other communities. I'm issuing for Barcelona, where I live. So we're getting all the communal leaders, elected, duly appointed, communal leaders in Barcelona, to issue a care in Barcelona on reading uh, philosophy books and this, that, and the other before you're 25 years old. Locally, okay? Um, it's all within the constitutional framework. The board of directors of the community were on board. The basin was on board. They did everything according to constitutional norms. So, don't accuse me, Joshua could say, of geographical imperialism. I am not being so bold as the Tosafists were in 1232 to say, even though we live in northern France, we're being geyser in the whole world. Okay? I'm not doing it. I'm just doing my own community. The personal authority of the Rajvab was sufficient that the other communities in Spain, and he wrote to them a lot, agreed and adopted as well. Hey, that's okay. I didn't make Toledo do it. Toledo decided to do it. I didn't make Saragossa do it. I didn't make Valencia do it, and so forth, Murcia. They had votes, and they just, everything was done according to the constitutional process. The Constitution of the Middle Ages, in which each community governed itself. Okay? Um, secondly, the Rajva gave much thought, I mean, it's clear to me, to drafting the language of a Kherim. What exactly was to be banned? What exactly was to be prohibited? Now we're talking lawyer talk. Hey, the Rajva is one of the great lawyers. First of all, he makes it clear not to Rambo. It's all okay. We are not touching. Anybody can read anything in the Ram from the time they're one year old. You understand? The Ram was a great man, Kodesh Kodoshim. We would never think of insulting him in the slightest way. So, notice he didn't want to repeat the mistake of 1232 and get a letter from the Ramban again. Uh, I mean, the Ramban was dead. The Raj was the Talmud Ramban, but you know what I mean. And so, um, it's very important that they did not besmirch. The honor of Maimonides. Which is kind of interesting. By the time you get to the third Maimonidean controversy, if you want to be extremely technical, it doesn't include Maimonides. Of course it really did, but formally it doesn't. Second of all, we want to ban secular studies, not medicine. <laughs> not medical school. Because there's a major part of those people, and they go nuts if you say, no, you can't become a doctor. We can't start learning for medicine until you're 25. What are you, crazy? Who's going to start start learning? 25, maybe even a little bit old for medical school, but <laughs> to start kindergarten, so to speak, you know, elementary at 25, is impossible. So he specifically said, not Hippocrates, 
you know, nothing like that. That's okay. Third of all, we're not banning math and astronomy. Pure math, you know, arithmetic, algebra, astronomy, geometry, and so forth. That's okay because obviously there's nothing religious about that. Okay? So you see how it's being formulated in a careful way to win over as many constituencies as you can. If you're the type of person who freaked out about medicine, we're not including medicine. If you're worried about science, we're not talking about science, not the heart sciences. Right? Well, I have to be clear about, clear about that. The other sciences were indeed to be banned. Because in the 13th century, I mean, these are not really hard sciences. Uh, biology, chemistry, um, physics, uh, optics, and all the, I mean, you're going by the old Greek books. I mean, a lot of it is guesswork and, 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 and uh, you know, hypotheses and things like that. Not really hard sciences. These were banned. So do not teach young people, do not read natural philosophy or metaphysics. Right? What's going on in heaven? Not till you mature. And fourth of all, the ban was fundamentally limited. As he said before, it's only prohibited until the age of 25. Then you're free to do whatever you want. So that lets off, a, a, like, what's the right word? You know, lets off pressure. But I don't say the whole your life you can't read English. But first learn, you know, Torah. Then when you're 25, you can start. You have a green light. And finally, he put a time limit on the ban. This ban is for 50 years. After that, it, it lapses unless it's readopted. All of these clauses, at least to me, bespeak the efforts of the Rajah to get it right. Not to make the mistakes of 1232. To try to show himself not as being too extreme, and so forth. Now comes the tricky part. To get the communities in France in Languedoc to issue similar bans. All following constitutional norms. So the Rajah would say, I am appealing, and he's righteous, to Montpellier, to Nîmes, to Perpignan, to Lugnel, to Pasquiers, to Narbonne, Carcassonne, and so on and so forth, Bézier, all those places, issue a similar ban. Get on board. Okay? It wasn't so simple. What to him was a moderate document seemed radical to others over there. Because let's face it, if you ever read the language, <laughs> the rest is like this. We're against Limudichol. This is like these people who are bringing Zimri Ben Solo and Cosby into the tenth of Moses. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty heavy over there, right? Uh, you know, the the foreign maiden, the forbidden fruit, into the tenth of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's pretty. Are you calling a Zimri? Is that what you're doing? You want us to sign that? Now the right wing communities in Languedoc, and there were some. Tiny. Had no problems, and they signed on. Because they weren't intellectual centers. They were not Torah model places. Uh, and anyway, there was the indefatigable, constant, corresponding activity of Mariaki. But when it came to the important communities, such as those I just mentioned, which were the bastions of the left wing, and more importantly, the bastions of the Torah model, it was a hornet's nest. Why are you trying to introduce your norms into Languedoc, where different norms have always prevailed? So why is Lakewood trying to take over Teaneck, to use modern language? I mean, you are certainly entitled to your opinions, and we too dislike excessive philosophical homiletics, but to prohibit it? 
by ways of coercion? When we don't agree with you? No. So you want us to ban all Imunichol? We don't agree. I mean, that's not what we think. We think Torah Amana. But by the same time at that time. This is the right way to go. We're not telling you what to do. And we, I hear the word, you know, I understand the mentality and respect the mentality of those who say Torah Belimana. Okay, fine. But don't expect us when we honestly really disagree with you to sign on and put a harem out. That's crazy. Okay? And the language of the band, they said, is disingenuous. You say it's okay to read the Marnabuchim, but not philosophy. Really? So let me get this straight. How are you supposed to understand the 25 philosophical propositions at the beginning of the second part of the Marnabuchim without which the Rambam says it's impossible to understand Judaism? All that business we did last time with uh, infinity and magnitude and, you know, uh, all the philosophical jargon. How are you going to be able to even understand it unless you have an education in basic philosophy before you read the Marnabuchim? <coughs> so when you say... And you're pious. We, oh, we have nothing against the Rambam. Just came from, that's, uh, you're disingenuous. Okay? Um, for his part, Abba Mariachi tried to politic behind the scenes to secure majorities in the Kihos to pass bans, harems, that would be based on the Barcelona bans. See, he didn't understand. He himself made himself so hated by the Terramata people. It's a mentality. Let's say a community had, I'm just making it up. Let's say a community had a communal governing board of 25 people. It's an odd number. Avamari Yachid would work young Malila to get 13 to 12. Oh! So we passed, now it's an official ban, passed by the killer, 13 to 12, majority rules, and now everybody, including the 12, have to follow along, or else you're Iver, or you're Messiah of Ladin, or you're Balavero. That ain't the way to do it. 13 to 12, you got a crisis on your hands. If you can't conform a consensus. There's Ari Mariachi, who said, I'm going by the book. You see how he made himself hated? That's my point. I know people like this. But this is a math and science mentality. Now, um, naturally, this turned everything into partisan polarization, which, of course, was the opposite of what the Rajwa, who's now 70 years old, had desired. According to constitutional norms, a ban had to be publicly proclaimed. This is the old school. Uh, Cherub had to be publicly proclaimed in Shul on Saturday mornings. And Abba Mariachi said, we got 13 to 12 in this town, so now you have to read it out in Shul, and nobody's out to interrupt it. You know as well as I do, sure as shooting, if somebody said, well, Cherub has been uh, done, half the Shul raises hell, people storm out of the Shul, they get into fist fights, this and that, the other, and Abba Mariachi said, well, we got 13 to 12, you know, or 14 to 11. And the result was a, 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 a bitter chaos and a polarization and a tremendous machlekes, within those communities. In addition, some of the opponents of the ban threatened to inform the civil authorities, which threatened the revival of 1232. Oh, here we go, bring in the Catholic Church, or the Count of, you know, Toulouse, or something like that. You know, bring in the guy, okay? And, anyway, one set of Jews going to bring in the Christians to settle a fight they have with another set of Jews, and the Chachil Hashem Godlem is there. Okay? Ayvenu Plilim, as it says, our enemy is going to be the judges of what truth. I mean, are we going to have a situation where two sets of from Jews are going to have a fight in front of the Pope? The Pope should decide which one is the real from Jew. Is that where you want to go? Indeed, the opponents of the Cherim went so far as to issue an Adarabo, 
Now, Adraba means we don't accept your cherem, and we put you in cherem. <laughs> Since your cherem was illegitimate and based on uh, wrong grounds, so it flips back on you. Whoa! Wait, let me get this straight. You're putting the Rajba in cherem? And cherem? And cherem? Much correspondence then ensued to ascertain whether such an Adraba had any legal force. It became clear that a gulf separated the two sides. To put it in clear terms, very few favored the over-the-top philosophical homiletics. In other words, very few, few people were extreme left-wingers. Okay? The idea that there is no Abraham, no Moses, no Adam, I mean, that is very few. You know, you might hear a speech like that, uh, very few held like that. But that didn't mean that they were prepared to accept a cherem, a halachic answer, on providing their children with a secular education, a liberal arts education, just because a few guys now say outrageous things. Parents wanted their secular education of their children to be left up to them. All this happened in the years 1304 to 1305. By late 1305, the Jews of Languedoc in these communities were divided into bitterly opposing camps. And none of this involved the Rambam directly. It certainly involved the Rambam and his writings indirectly. It involved Maimonideanism. That is the basic idea that there is a supreme value, hear my words, Basically, the idea that there's a supreme value in secular knowledge, even though Judaism comes first. This was the image, or the myth, of Maimonideanism. Now, I'm not saying the Rambam held that way, but that's the way they, they, they thought of it. The notion of Limud Echol as a supreme value infuriated the right wing. More accurately, it caused them a lot of pain. Each side naturally presented the Rambam as one of theirs. You know, the old line, just my monodies versus your monodies. An eloquent protest was written to the Rajva by a pillar of the Torah Mata, Yedaya Bedersi, Yedaya, Rabbi Yedaya of Bezier, uh, who was a poet. He was a commentator on Midrashim. He was a Talmud Chacham, no heavy hitter. Okay? Also, like I said, B-level. But a guy's fine, a guy. And a Talmud Chacham, a from guy. But he was, as we would say, a Termata. Right? I mean, he was a Talmudist. He was a from guy. And he was a Maimonidean in valuing philosophy in Limitichol, subordinate to Torah. As an eloquent Hebraist, because he was a poet. And a fellow with a lot of local uh, pride, long dog pride, local boy. Gitaya was horrified by the Hiram which he viewed as a terrible mistake. And he wrote a protest letter to the Rajva, which became a classic of Hebrew literature. It's called Diger's Hahit Not Salutes. Hahit Not Salute. The letter of apology. Not apology like in English, I'm apologizing to you. Apologia Provita Zutza. Defending Ashita. Now, um, this letter was written in a very ultra-respectful tone. That's why it is included in the Shubhas Arashma. And it respectfully offered a line-by-line rebuttal of the harem that was composed by the Rajma, 
of every argument that was advanced by the Rashba. And aside from its flowery eloquence, I mean the medieval type of flowery Hebrew eloquence, it is a literary gem of what I would call from cognitive dissonance, right? Because on the one hand, let's go to the next one. I'm not a mechusif. I just, I have this long letter, I'll just give you a tiny piece. Look how he introduces the letter and he writes to the Rashba like he's God. And he meant it. He said, I'm ready to go to the door. You're the greatest person around, and so on and so forth. If Nekvod Malas Adonenu, Kedushas Anvaska Onenu, Sinif Malchus Dosenum, Woo! Ateris Teferis, Hadrosenu Batarosenu, Gulas Azov on Menorus Golosenu, the golden bowl on the menorah of the, Jew, uh, uh, of the people in Golos. You're the shining light of the Jewish people. And he meant it, right? Hayoshev Beshevis Tachamoni Beshte Yeshivas of Chumonis Lamalamol. You're the Rosh Hashiva. In Shemayim and also down here. God of Ador, greatest Jew alive. Hayoshe bitonu lamari nayim, omandi libe rechav yadayim, parsik nafayim brachiu shemayim. You know what's going on in heaven downstairs as well. Aviyim shal yasemi agola. Woo, boy. We are poor orphan Jews. Now in the Gola, we don't have base amigdash. When we have you, we orphans have a father. Okay? Hashir bezroso, chemosi ruchmo. It's through your influence that we have rachmonis. You're an angel of God. If you don't even understand the words I just said, and I'm the patience of the people, they're the highest praise and encomium. Right? So he's basically writing letters like this. I'm not a chutzpateka guy. From God, I'm not coming to, um, you know, insult you or anything like that. I know who you are, and I respect you for your tremendous eminence, and I hold you in the highest esteem, and he meant it. I think he learned under him. But on this, you're wrong. <laughs> but with all due respect, you are misinformed about the situation in France, in Languedoc. Almost no one there is actually an extreme left-winger. 99% are from Jews. They believe in the fundamentals just as you do, right? The fundamentals of Judaism. As to curriculum, I can tell you, he says, although no one actually does secular studies before Torah, he's whoever told you that's is, is full baloney. Uh, almost nobody does that. Certainly not metaphysics and that sort of thing. They're not teaching Myrna Vukim at high schools. Some of us studied on our own, and it didn't hurt. We find it. A useful way of understanding the Torah misses. Not in a way that negatively impacts on our Torah and Yerushalayim. That is the way it has always been in Languedoc. Torah is very much alive in the Torah model land. And shame on the Lashon Hara spreaders for informing you otherwise. We do believe in Torah Mata as did the Rambab. But it has never meant a diminution of our Imuna. By publishing your Cherem a man of your worldwide reputation, you have blackened the name of our territory, of Languedoc forever and ever. The other nations will always think we're a nest of, not from, it is not true. You're shaming us. And even those few preachers who gave those interpretations of Abraham and Sarah and so forth, so what? Don't you, the Raja, also offer rationalistic interpretations of the Agadita in your response to one of the interesting books 
you can get if you want. The Chubas Arashva, uh, actually I have it over there. The Chubas Arashva, now by the uh, Chalik Rishon, there's a whole separate part called the Chubas Arashva on Maim Arashva Lagadatha. And let me tell you something. The Rajva, these are people right to the Rajva. They have thousands of response and halacha and everything. If you don't know, many volumes of the Chubas Arashva. Some have to do with Lagadathas. And the Rajva always tries to give a very rationalistic, down to earth uh, interpretation, even if, I don't know if he himself believed it. Here's a famous one just off the top of my head. They asked the Rajva, what does it mean? It says, eventually all the holidays will be buckled except for Purim and Yom Kippur. You've heard of that. What does that mean? Are we going to cancel Pesach Shemun You know, the Rajva says, what it means is, Rajva says, what it means is like this. In various persecutions, between the Inquisition and the pogroms and Hitler, one time or another, Jews will find themselves unable to keep this holiday or that holiday. The one holiday, they will be able to keep it poor on Yom Kippur. It's not exactly true. It's a rationalistic work. Get it? It's a work. Now, um, our writer here, Yedaya Badersi, he says, I know you can't share the Kabbalistic reasons. So you give glib, rationalistic ones. Well, that's what these guys in Landoff do. I mean, they told Avram and Sarah, they're not saying that's the whole story. They're just trying to give a speech at a wedding, you know, for a regular uh, audience. They believe in the Kabbalistic hinterland when they say that, you know, Adam and Eve represent form and this. They know Adam and Chava really come from the mystical things. They're trying to give it a plain, poshet understanding for a simple audience. That's all. All I can tell you is, this long letter, which does take issue with the Rajpa in every line, is written so respectfully, and with such covet, years I covet, that the authors who assembled the Chubas Rasha included it in there, because you see, even his opponents held the Rajpa in, in the very highest esteem. So you can read this in the Chubas Rasha. Now, uh, it bespeaks, by the way, the failure of the Rajpa to win over the Taramana people. Because here's a guy, he's a from guy, a Talmud Chacham, and he's saying, I I bow to you in Gemara, you know, you're a God of But this is not your area. Don't, you know, you can say what you want in Barcelona. The Torah culture, I repeat, the Torah culture in Languedoc, for many of us, is a Taramana culture. And it works. And it's our Avos did it, Avos Avos, and they were correspondence with the Rambam. And so that's what we want to do. Right? At most, what the from Taramata people were saying, what Yadaya Badersi was saying was, at the most, okay, out of respect from you, for you, because you're the Rajva, we will obey. But we will do so sullenly, sadly, and bitterly. Bitter at that jerk Abba Murray for poisoning you. Sad that someone of your stature believed that Lashon Har. Sullen because we are being coerced. Now, this is a lot better than the year 1232. They didn't say we're going to tell the Pope on you. We're going to burn books, chop off tongues, cut off people's heads. Right? But it was much better. But it's far worse than what the Rajva had desired. A festering obedience? At best, that's where they say, well, listen, because it's you. We hate it. And you die with them. The firmness of them. 
this is not good for the authority of the Torah. If you put it in a harem, and people hate it, they just do it because, you know, their basic respect, you're, you're creating a poison well. It's going to have bad waters. And so, as you see, in that summer of 1305, the communities in Languedoc were seething the fall of 1305 and the winter of 1305. And then, the whole controversy suddenly ceased. Once again, courtesy of the Goyim. Exactly a year after the issuance of the Cherem, the king of France expelled all the Jews from the kingdom of France, including Languedoc. There's that famous idiot, Philip IV. Uh, and uh, I won't even go into reasons why. He started in 1360 to kill the Jews out of France. And remember, um, Nimes, Marseille, I mean, uh, Montpellier now belong to France. By the time we're talking about And so all of a sudden, the Jews had to leave. Think of what that means. Suppose they kick everybody at Baltimore. Or where we live. I mean, immediately. And so life was turned upside down. All of a sudden, all these communities ceased to exist. All of a sudden, all these people, well-to-do, well-established, are refugees. Now, by the way, not Perpignan. Not where the mayor lives. Why? Perpignan is not part of the kingdom of France. I told you before. It's a piece of Spain sticking into France. So, many people run away to Perpignan. But the regular communities are busted. It is the death knell of Torah motto in the Middle Ages. This model, I use the word Torah motto advisedly. That they were Gamar, 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 but also in Munichol. Gamar, 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 but also interested in the philosophical interpretation as advanced by the Rambam and people like him. Uh, Languedoc will never really be replicated in the Middle Ages. They have this very strong term out of business. Aragon, the Rajput died five years later, will be more extremist. You'll have, as time goes on, the right wing getting more right and the left wing become more left because that was a reaction to the Kherim. So the Frumis versus the Averroists, that's the famous uh, thesis of Yitzhak Baer and his history of the Jews of Christian Spain. He might be right, he might be wrong, but that's a famous historical thesis. Let's go to the next one. We're dealing with Aragon, which you can see on the right side of the map, just below France. Barcelona is the capital. And so things have become uh, hashkafically more paralyzed, uh, uh, polarized as the 1300s go on. Or maybe not. This contention is famously uh, uh, articulated with the Chassid Yavitz. When the Jews kicked down in 1492, uh, half the Jews elected to remain behind and become Catholics. The other half left. And uh, one of the writers, one of the refugees, Chassid Yavitz, they call him, this is not Yaakov another guy, he says, see, all the left-wingers were poisoned by their philosophy and they didn't have the backbone, they converted. The ones who were uh, yeshiva-ish, they're the ones who were less educated, they didn't know philosophy and all the rest of it, they stayed from and gave up everything to keep their Yiddish guide, even though leaving the country meant they lost everything. Is this true or not? I don't know. When I say I don't know, historians very heavily debate this, whether this is actually so. Let's put it this way. In the 1300s, uh, in Barcelona, after the Rajwa, you had the Ron, uh, Ben Anissim, his big yeshiva there, 
And they teach Torah motto. I mean, they, they have a philosophy. You won't believe this. People are shocked to be telling. They taught philosophy um, in the yeshiva. Um, probably not in a Maimonidean manner. Probably it's more in a manner of trying to slug up philosophy and trying to dial hashiv. That's what I think. Uh, this is a very complicated subject. And the most celebrated um, Talmud to emerge out of that system is Chazdei Kreskis. Let's go to the next one. The Ron's Prize Talmud, who uh, was a major philosopher, was an anti-Maimonidean in the philosophical sense. He wrote this whole book to slug up Maimonides and Aristotle. And it's kind of well known that he uh, did, using philosophical arguments, uh, broke a lot of what Aristotle said. It's the beginning of the decline of Aristotelianism once his ideas get out there. So, is that called Limudichol when you're learning philosophy in order to slug up Greek philosophy? It's hard to tell. I just want to emphasize that the Cherim of the Rasha never really took root. That nobody can learn anything English or, as they say, or secular, 325. You want an example of a harem that takes root? We have those. Rabbi Gershom can't have two wives. That's a harem that took place, that took root. The Raj was harem. Nobody can read anything secular to 25. Eh, not really. On the other hand, there was no outburst of interest in the Marnebuchim. There couldn't be with such a difficult bird. You can't turn the guy for the perplexed into a, uh, what should I say, a popular book you know, to read on the bus. Now, I'm sure today, I might be wrong, I think there's something called the Dummies Guide to Guide for Perplex, but it's got to be a joke, right? Um, let me put it this way. When's the last time you saw somebody in Shul, you know, reading a murder book? <laughs> Not really. So, in addition, the Kabbalah popped up. The Kabbalist published, <laughs> excuse me, published the Zohar around 12.9. That's a whole story by itself I don't have time for. Right in the middle of all this controversy, uh, uh, the Moshe of Leon in Spain published, started making copies of the Zohar. That had a giant effect. All of a sudden, everything is moved into mysticism, which is just use all the philosophy of the Rambam and Aristotle as, like, you know, pueral, irrelevant. In the long run, for most Jews, the Zohar beats the Murray I say if you look from the year 1300, down till today even, uh, but certainly over the centuries, the Zohar to Kabbalah, that really took off. Uh, not. It's an elitist document. This is a profound development in Jewish history. I just don't have time to uh, fear it ice tonight. The Murnabuchim, the guy for perplexed, was published three times in three centuries. Okay? That's what I mean. When the printing press came out, and I'm thankful to our host tonight, uh, our sponsor, Saul Stefanski, you know, who's in, is in the selling these rare book stuff. They sent me, this is the original printing, 1469 in Rome, God for Perplex. This is the only time they printed it, which is, by the way, one of the first Hebrew books ever printed. No cover. Books didn't have covers until the 1500s. It's called Incanabulous, right? Uh, and so, listen closely. The Murabrikum was published there's a book in 1469, in 1553, and in 1742. See what I mean? It means nobody was reading it, okay? Uh, very few. And so most Jews 
in the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 hundreds, the Rambam is the author of the Mishnah Torah. And the Mishnah Torah in that other book, <laughs> right? Everybody's read the Mishnah Torah in one part or another. The Mishnah Torah, that's the other book he wrote. They never really engaged with it. My friends, there's a lot more to say. The hour's late. I had planned, as I said, to finish the uh, aftermath. I barely started. I need a summer rest. And so, when I have time, if we have backing, I think we will. Perhaps we will return with the eighth and final lecture. Don't laugh. But for now, I bid you shalom and have a good summer. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.